On today's Ringer MLB show, we're going to talk to Zach Cram about James and Tyon, the resurgent Pittsburgh Pirates, and whether it's time to panic in Chicago and Washington. And Ben Lindbergh surveys the undulating landscapes of Los Angeles baseball and Texas Rangers right-hander Bartolo Colon. And Ringer senior editor Ryan O'Hanlon joins us to dispense his unique brand of baseball wisdom. I'm Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer and your host. And as always, we are brought to you by The Ringer Podcast Network, where you can check out The Ringer NBA show to get every take possible regarding the NBA playoffs. And if in addition to podcasts, you're a fan of the written word, I have good news for you. You can check out TheRinger.com and find basketball content, as well as Ben Lindbergh's story on the state of the super team in Major League Baseball, as well as my column on the St. Louis Cardinals 100-mile-an-hour rookie relief pitcher, Jordan Hicks. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Today we're going to be talking about some surprising developments of the first couple weeks of the Major League Baseball season. And one development that does not surprise us is that Zach Cram is the breakout star of The Ringer MLB Show. He joins me, as always, to lead off this episode. Zach, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm feeling like I'm being slowly eclipsed by you. All the feedback I've been getting on the podcast is, is, oh my God, Zach is great. So we're going to have you do some heavy lifting early on. So we're doing this real or not real segment, talking about some of the surprising things one way or another early in the season. Uh, Ben's going to be on later to talk about some of the West Coast phenomenons, but we're going to stay East because Ben lives on the East Coast and you live on the West Coast. And that's just the way it worked in my head. So we talked about the the New York Mets last week, and I think we you know we covered a lot in terms of why they're at to this hot hot start. So let's just hit on them real quick and then bounce on to the the next thing. How much of this are you buying a week later? We talked about the Mets a lot last week. Really, the only thing that's shifted uh, in the intervening time is that Zach Wheeler made his first start of the season, his first start since last July, actually, and he looked great. Granted, it came against the Marlins, but he still went seven innings, allowed just two hits, struck out seven. So the more depth they have in their rotation, the better able they are to keep Lugo and Gisellman in the bullpen where they've been really strong. And like we talked about last week, even if your perception of the Mets' true talent hasn't changed that much and won't necessarily change until anyone gets hurt, They've still banked a lot of wins. At this point, even if they go just 500 the rest of the way, they'll still finish with 86 wins, which might be a wild card in and of itself. So basically, they just keep giving themselves and building a much greater margin for error than they had entering the season. And I'll add one more thing just on the injury front. They got, I mean, Travis Darno is out for the season. Kevin Ploiecki is out until next month sometime, probably. Although who knows what the, this is, you know, they're winning, but they're still the Mets. So who knows? Uh, so they're dealing with Jose Lobatone behind the the plate. So we'll, we will be tracking the the progress of Jose Lobatone as the, um, as the season goes on. But the flip side of this is the heavy National League East favorites, the Washington Nationals, are now five games out of first place. So I actually am a little bit nervous about about the Nats. Like, I still think they're the best team in the National League East, but if for no other reason, I don't know if at this point in the season, they're five games better than the Mets from here until September. Yeah, and if you think about it, it could have even been worse. If they hadn't completed a miraculous comeback in the eighth inning last night, they would be seven games behind the Mets, which doesn't sound like a huge difference, but two games is a lot. And I think I would say the national start isn't real. It isn't indicative of how they're going to play the rest of the season. I'm not as concerned about them as I am about some other teams that have had slow starts, mainly because the Nationals lineup just hasn't been whole at all. Daniel Murphy hasn't played yet, and I believe he's starting to take at bats now and is hoping to be back in the next few weeks. Adam Eaton only played in eight games before going to the DL And even if not everyone is going to bounce back, like Ryan Zimmerman after his weird spring training uh, and he started the season hitting 118, he might just be done. But I still think they have a lot of upside. If you look at their rotation, they 
have basically the same underlying statistics that the Mets rotation does. It's just that the Mets have been really lucky with things like stranding runners on base and preventing home runs. So that makes the rotation look really good. But over the rest of the season, you'd expect those two staffs to kind of balance against each other. They still have Scherzer. They still have Strasburg. They still have Bryce Harper who's hitting out of his mind right now. So I think they still have a pretty high floor. And all they need is a bounce back from some of their injured players to really you know, get back in the race. Even the results, like you know, talked about the underlying numbers, even the, the results for four of their five starting pitchers have been awesome. But like you take that from here until the end of the season, probably take it all the way to the division title. The only you know downside has been AJ Cole, who got bumped out of the rotation for Jeremy Hellickson last time through. And you know, Hellickson pitched okay against the Mets. If that's you know, I don't that might be all you need as a fifth starter. Um Zimmerman troubles me not because they can't deal with it if he's done. Um, you know, they've got a ready-made first base replacement in Matt Adams on the roster. And once Adam Eaton comes back, they will no longer have to play Matt Adams left field, which was an absolute, like they might not have needed to come back against the Mets on Monday. If, uh, if Eaton had been in left instead of Matt Adams doing his flying circus defensive routine. But, um, you know, I, but what I worry about with Zimmerman is, the classic, like, face of the franchise, old guy, Albert Pujols, like, this guy's a, a millstone, and can a, a rookie manager and Dave Martinez have that conversation early in the season to take him out of lineup if that's where they need to go? He already has been benched a few times for Adams, who's been playing a decent amount against uh, right-handed pitchers as sort of a semi-platoon. And I don't think that's entirely unmanageable for the rest of the season. I don't think anyone expects Zimmerman to play this badly. And even if he settles into a kind of Pujols-esque role, it's not asking too much for him to hit just against lefties and maybe weaker hitter, weaker pitchers from the Marlins or something like that. And even the rest of the the lineup, like if Zimmerman's the six hitter, the top five, if they're healthy, are so good that it might not matter as much. Like Trey Turner, for instance, hasn't been hitting as well if you look at his results this year. He's hitting just 219 with two extra base hits. But peek under the hood and like all of his signifiers look really solid. He is looking like an even better hitter than he was as a rookie year last season. If you look at like his walk rate is triple what it was last year. His hard hit rate is up by 50%. He's spraying the ball to all fields. So I think if you have a top of the lineup that's him and Eaton getting on base in front of Bryce Harper, Daniel Murphy and Anthony Rendon to drive them in after that, that's just such a solid top of the lineup that I'm not really concerned about their ability to score runs right now. So this is an injury thing to you more than more than anything else. Yeah, I think it's been a little bit fluky. I'd still probably take the Nationals to win the division right now. But if the Mets lead is still this big, it's a Memorial Day, I'd certainly change my tune, maybe even at the end of the month. Uh, and I think especially this early in the season, even if it hasn't affected their games as much as it has like the Twins. The weather has been so wonky right now. I just think there's sort of a lot of weirdness going on in baseball this year. Maybe it'll last the whole season like it did in 2015, but I'm a little more cautious to say that every division race is, is in arrears than I would be if this were still the case in a month. And I'd say I'd say another thing that helps is we saw the, the effect of this with the comeback on Monday, but they still have, I think, 15 more games against the Mets. They could make this up just head to head if they play well. Um, and they also have the Victor Robles card if uh, um, if that's a direction they need to go. If, you know, they need a center fielder, you know, Brian Goodwin or, or Michael Taylor continues not to hit. Um, although Goodwin's been good this year. You mentioned the weather. This wasn't on our uh, our prep sheet, but Real or not real, we are living in what was the the oh geostorm? We are living in geostorm, and baseball needs to find a way to adapt. It, it did get me thinking uh, just the other day, and I have no idea what the answer to this is. But like, let's say it just never stopped raining or snowing in one of these cities like Detroit or Minnesota or something. I wonder like how many games in a row they would need to cancel before Rob Manfred stepped in and did something about it. Like if the Twins had 20 home games canceled in a row, I wonder what would happen. And obviously that won't happen, but the the hypothetical part of me is kind of curious about what the answer would be there. Uh, but you also mentioned Victor Robles and talk about injuries. He doesn't need surgery, but he's going to be out for a while with an elbow injury. So even the Nationals reinforcements are having some 
trouble. And maybe they'll just have the worst injury year and nobody could really predict that. And if that ends up happening, it'll be somewhat unexpected that the Nationals are the the ones affected by the injury and the Mets of all teams are the beneficiaries. I mean, we, we've seen this before. We saw it with the Rangers a few years ago. Like, this just happens to teams. So, But, you know, most of those guys, like, like you said, are coming back uh, relatively soon. But let's go to... I like the Mets you could sort of see coming if everything broke their way. One thing I did not see coming is the Pittsburgh Pirates starting off 11 and five real or not real you. Not real. Uh, Pittsburgh has undeniably played well over the first few weeks. And after a lousy offseason for the fans who saw their probably best pitcher and hitter of the last 25 years traded, I'm I'm happy for them. But Realistically, if you look at who they've played so far, the Pirates are 8-2 and two against the Tigers, Reds, and Marlins, who might be the three worst teams in baseball. And they're 3-3 three and three against the Twins, Cubs, and Rockies. So that's somewhat reductive. Of course, if a team plays that well against bad teams and splits against the good teams, they'll be fine over the long run. But I don't really think the Pirates are a 500 team against the teams they'll be battling against for a playoff spot. I think at this point, Pirates fans should be more encouraged by individual improvements than anything on a team-wide level because a lot of their players are playing well. Uh, You look at, like in our uh, fantasy league, the Ringer Fantasy League, on the second day of the season, there was a trade of Jamison Tyone for Gregory Polanco. And you mocked it, Michael. You mocked it in Slack. I'm never going to live this down. Said it put you to sleep. And now Tyone might be... You know, a top five pitcher in Polanco, a top five hitter in the league so far. So that's a silly example, but a lot of their individual players have been really good so far. So you're buying the Jamison Tyone after, like, you know, we joke about Garrett Richards. Um, you know, maybe this is a year he'll he'll finally be healthy all year. You're putting your your chips down on Jameson Tyone now? Uh, yeah, I like him a lot. Uh, I think last year he had the health scare. That was the, quite a remarkable comeback for him. And he suffered a bit after he returned from the disabled list. Uh, but if you look at his peripherals, they were still pretty solid. And thus far, he's generating a lot of soft contact. He's pitching well with runners on base, which might not sustain. I don't think he's going to end the year with an ERA below one. But even his strikeout and walk numbers are solid and he pitches in a nice ballpark in front of a pretty good defense. I wouldn't be surprised if he makes an all-star team. Certainly the team that everybody expected to be up in the top of uh, the NL central is the Chicago Cubs. They are seven and seven. How worried are you? You know, Anthony Rizzo is on the DL. Sorry, he's been on the DL. He's expected to come off uh, soon, perhaps uh, even today as we record this on Tuesday John Lester's had his ups and downs. Their starting rotation has been inconsistent, shall we say? And you know how? What's your level of concern here? So I think the Cubs are in a separate category from a team like the Nationals or the Dodgers, where maybe if you believe that the Nationals and Dodgers their starts aren't real, they'll play well over the second half. They've already given the Diamondbacks and the Mets such a big lead that they'll actually have to work to make up a five-game deficit. The Cubs are lucky because even even though the Pirates have played well, they only have a couple-game lead on the Cubs. But I'm of those teams most concerned about Chicago's just true talent level going forward. Uh, After their elimination in last season's playoffs, I wrote a piece about how the Cubs seemed like a budding dynasty after their triumph in 2016, but they no longer looked quite as imposing. And people on the north side of Chicago online were, uh, they did not receive that column all too kindly, but last year- They're mad about everything. You know what? You can't can't worry about Cubs fans. They're just pissed off all the time. I I spent, you remember when they traded- uh, um, uh, Solaire for for Wade Davis. I said that that the Cubs won that trade. That Solaire wasn't very good, and I had Cubs fans like at me for days about, wait, what do you mean Solaire wasn't good? You know, he's one of our prospects. He was great. And like, so just don't worry about Cubs fans. <laughs> I think they'll, they'll I think you won that, that one. But uh... I know, I know, <laughs> and nobody ever like this is the the price of writing about sports on the internet is like when you hang your ass out there i I don't which i guess i did you know which didn't feel like it at the time but like you deliver a take and you're proven right nobody ever talks about that but you know when you're wrong it'd be this this 
all the, that one thing is all the people remember about you. So, you know, I'm, you know what? The Cubs won the Wade Davis trade. Sue me. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I certainly wouldn't declare uh, victory about my own take just 14 games into the season. But I think last year was kind of a slog for them of all the division winners. They had the most trouble sort of fending off the Brewers. And I'm not entirely convinced it was just a World Series hangover. And you mentioned their inconsistent pitching. I looked this morning, and it's very early in the season. War numbers in particular are kind of fluctuating. But right now, here are their top seven pitchers by baseball reference war. Pedro Strop, Brian Densing, Steve Sizik, Kyle Hendricks, Carl Edwards, Brandon Morrow, and Eddie Butler. You'll notice that only one of those names belongs to a starter, and that's concerning. Uh my favorite I'm, pitching. Well, I was going to say it's really <laughs> concerning. You mentioned Brian Dunsing that that early. Number in the two, list. Uh, and even beyond WAR, my favorite pitching stat early in the season is strikeout weight, strikeout rate minus walk rate, which basically just shows which pitchers are commanding the strike zone, who's dominating, etc. And if you look at the top of the list that season, it makes sense with sort of what we believe intuitively. The top teams are the Astros, Mets, Dodgers, Red Sox, Nationals, Diamondbacks, Yankees, and Indians. Those are the best rotations in baseball. The Cubs, by this metric, are 29th. They're only ahead of the White Sox. They're in the same range as the Marlins, the Padres, the Reds. Those are the worst staffs in baseball. And while I'd certainly pick the Cubs over like the White Sox over the rest of the season, they have just a lot more variance and a lot more downside than like the Nationals and the Indians and the Dodgers do in their rotation. The Cubs five could all be all-stars, but they could also look old like John Lester has or erratic like you Darvish has or whatever the heck is going on with Jose Quintana, whose average fastball thus far has been his lowest in any month since 2012. That's a little concerning. And sure, some of it is probably due to the weather. They played through atrocious rain and wind over the weekend against the Braves. But Darvish and Quintana were also roughed up in Miami against the Marlins. So that's not the only reason the whole staff has ERAs that look like they belong in Coors Field in the 90s. I mean, I agree 100% with with everything you said. I think the Cubs, they have some vulnerabilities. I still think they're favorites because I think they lucked out that the team that jumped out to this early division lead was the Pirates and not the Cardinals or the Brewers. The, I mean, the Brewers have been absolutely shredded by injuries, but you know, and the Cardinals have their own problems. But if one of those teams was 11 and five, then I think we could talk, but yeah, I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of faith in Pittsburgh's pitching apart from Tyone. Um, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the, the Cubs, you know, probably weaker for the rest of the season compared to the Dodgers or the Nationals or or the Yankees even, but they're in a better situation. Yeah, I just think with the Cubs, the one other point of concern I have is over the last couple of seasons, Theo Epstein has been aggressive about making in-season adjustments uh, and improvements. He added Quintana last year or all this Chapman in 2016, but between graduations to the major league level and trading a lot of prospects for like Quintana, uh, the Cubs have basically no farm system right now. Baseball America has been ranking prospects since 1990 and the Cubs for the first time ever this winter don't have a single top 100 prospect. So I just think if they're still in a tight race come July, you know, in the past we've been conditioned to believe that these rich super teams will have an easy move in them to make an upgrade. I'm not so sure the Cubs will be able to do that this year. I'm glad you brought that up because I I remember we were talking about the Red Sox last week with Bill. He said, you know, maybe they've got a another trade in them. And I'm like, you know, they're, it's weird to think about teams like the Cubs and the Red Sox who have been good at developing young talent, not really having that reserve well of, of young talent to trade from. I, I mean, the reason for that is it's not that they stopped doing it. It's that all the, you know, all their good young players are contributing to the big league team now. So, you know, the farm system worked. It's just, they need to need to build back some of that depth. So yeah, I mean this, that could be an issue if they're still sort of, within a few games of 500 in, in June or July. And we saw that. I mean, that's exactly what happened last year when they got off to a slow start and then, you know, spent their last couple bullets on Quintana. Yeah. And again, I would take the Cubs to win their division because like you said, the team that jumped to the hot start was probably the least scary of the Cardinals and Brewers and Pirates. But 
of the National League slow starters, I think the Cubs concern me most just from a talent level. Okay. Well, we'll check back in and you know around Memorial Day, and if you're right, trust me, I will not forget. I will give you your victory laugh. Appreciate it. I'm sure the Cubs fans will forget just as quickly. Thanks as always to Zach. We'll be back with Ben Lindbergh on LA Baseball after these messages. If you're a baseball fan, you know the story of Moneyball. In 2002, the Oakland A's introduced advanced statistical methods to the world of baseball, forever changing the sport. In 2012, Upstart introduced advanced statistical methods into the world of lending, providing its borrowers a way to get rid of high-interest debt without the traditional underwriting process. Upstart offers personal loans that go beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness and reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. Go online and find your upstart rate in just two minutes checking is free and will never affect your credit once your loan is approved the funds will be transferred to you the very next business day then you can use the funds to pay off credit cards consolidate debt even make a large purchase the choice is yours over 100,000 people have already used upstart now it's your turn Hurry to upstart.com slash MLB show to find out how low your upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes two minutes and will not affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash MLB show. Loans are offered by Cross River Bank and New Jersey State Chartered Commercial Bank. Restrictions apply. For details, visit upstart.com slash MLB show. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome in our second guest, the happiest man in baseball, Ben Lindbergh. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Just call me Matt Albers because I am locking down the ninth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess Matt Albers is the the person that you'd go with there as opposed to Wilmer Font. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had to struggle for a segue into into our Dodgers real or not real uh, discussion because mm-hmm. the defending National League champions are... Six and nine, they're in third place. They are several games behind the Arizona Diamondbacks. And we know it's not time to panic, right? It is definitely not time to panic. It is a little bit disconcerting nonetheless. I mean, if a team that was supposed to be like a 98-win team or whatever uh, Pakoda and Zips had them projected for, that won more than 100 games last year, was one, we were talking about them breaking the... Um, breaking the Cubs and Mariners all-time single-season wins record last year, and they bring back pretty much the entire team, and they come out of the gate like this. I guess that losing streak in the second half of last season is another reminder of that you know any team can start at any at any point. Of, you know, what's the, right. the rule? You know, any player can hit anything for two weeks. But yes. if the team's going to struggle, you know, you, you don't want to say you want to see more injuries, but that would be a lot more comforting to to blame, you know, a, a more comforting place to to place the blame. Of course, they lost Turner in spring training with the broken wrist. Right. He'll probably still be out for a few more weeks. But yeah, I don't really think of them that much differently than I did a few weeks ago. I think everything is magnified at the start of the season. Obviously, if a stretch like this happens in the middle of the season, no one really notices I think the fact that they've fallen five games behind the Diamondbacks is significant, obviously. And you can say the same about the Nationals or the Yankees, who are also trailing their division leaders by five games. And that's not an insignificant amount. So they now have to make up that ground in less than a full season, which is not easy to do. But there's nothing about them that makes me really that worried. There was the scare about Kenley Jansen and his velocity In his first outing of the season, he gave up runs in his first couple outings of the season. He's now had four scoreless appearances in a row. The velocity has ticked up a bit. And you look at their lineup, and they've got Corey Seager, Yasiel Puig, Jack Peterson, Logan Forsythe, who's on the DL now, all with sub-600 OPSs. I don't expect any of those players to finish there. Corey Seager is going to be just fine. So I'm not really that worried about the team. I think Behind Kershaw, the starting rotation has looked weak, but again, these are not guys I was all that worried about two, three weeks ago, so I shouldn't allow myself to be that worried about them now. Kenley Jansen was the the one thing that I was legitimately worried about because I think everybody else is going to sort of fall in line. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Scott Alexander's had a, a couple rough outings, but they've just to to illustrate how early in the season this is you know they're six and nine let's say they flip two games right and then um you know they're eight and seven they're one game over 500 they're 
Um, yeah, I don't think it, it. They'd still be in second place, but I think having just having a winning record would have done a lot to alleviate maybe some of their early season concern. But you know, those mm-hmm. two games are the result of Wilmer Font just <laughs> exactly, forgetting yeah. how to pitch, and I mean that's why I brought him up. He's he's second from the bottom in. Uh, in win probability added among major league relievers, he's allowed multiple runs in in uh, his last four appearances. Two of them, uh, the first two of which were losses in the first week of the season. So, it you know this is the sort of thing that can just one or two bad games can throw a season. You know, can make make the record look completely out of whack. Yeah, and they've only been outscored by one run, even with Wilmer Font's worst efforts. And obviously, he's a guy who had a lot of success in AAA last year and was sort of a popular preseason sleeper pick this year. But that has not panned out or he's not doing the sort of sleeping that that anyone was anticipating. So I think, yeah, when we have this few games played, you can point to one or two and say that if something had gone differently in that game or this game, things would look a lot different. And the Diamondbacks are good, so it's not no cause for concern, although they have their own cause for concern now with Taiwan Walker, who has his forearm inflammation, which you never know whether that will turn out to be more serious than expected. Yeah, but yeah, long term, I'm I'm not selling my Dodgers stock yet. I said last week that, that Shohei Otani was bringing out a side of you that I've never seen before, <laughs> and that's only... It's. I mean that that effect has only become more extreme. The Angels are thirteen and three right now, and uh, um, I mean they're, they're three games team. up. I know they're they're <laughs> three and a half games up on uh, both the. Um, sorry, they're three games up on the Mariners. They're three and a half games up on the Astros, and the Astros. I mean, this is, you know, what I was saying about the. Uh, the Dodgers. If they had a winning record, there would be no cause for concern. People down here are like a little. You know, they're they're a little worried about the offense. The Astros haven't really hit, but they pitch so well that I don't think anybody's concerned about the team on a macro level. But the Angels, right. 13 and three, how much of that is real and how much of that is just sort of this early season noise? It's real and it's spectacular. I have never bandwagoned a baseball team before the way that I have bandwagoned the Angels. I mean, some of this obviously is sort of unsustainable. Like they have the highest run differential in the majors. They have really thoroughly trounced their opponents. So they have earned this win-loss record so far. Their offense has been incredible. They, I think, have outscored the next closest team by something like 13 runs, I believe. And you'd have to go. That's like the size of the difference between the number two and number seven scoring teams in baseball. So they've really just kind of lapped the field here. And they're the best baseball, best base running team in baseball even so far. They're one of the best defensive teams, which I think we all anticipated. So the concern with them is pitching, of course, and that's something that I think we were aware of coming into the season, but they've already lost some guys. They've lost JC Ramirez. They lost Alex Meyer in the spring. They've maybe lost Matt Shoemaker now, so they're a little shorthanded. The guys they do have have pitched pretty well, but it's a thin group right now, I would say. So They've looked impressive, really, in in every facet of the game. And, of course, they have my son, my beautiful boy, who has not played for four days, which is a crime against him and the sport and all of us. And I can't wait for his next start just a few hours from now. But I think the Angels are good. I'm not you know, going to put them above the Astros because I think we were all right to think that the Astros were the best team in baseball coming into the season. Yeah, I think... The Angels are. There are a couple things here that obviously aren't going to continue through through the, uh, the the rest of the season. Like Tyler Skaggs is not going to have a two thirty four ERA plus from now until the the rest of the year. But there are other things that that are if you know and like Otani's not going to hit or he's not going to slug like eight hundred for the rest of the season. Things like that. But there are other promising things that you know I hadn't really considered going into the season that they've demonstrated over the over the past couple of weeks you know one of them is you know you turn that WPA uh reliever chart upside down Keenan Middleton's at the top he's a young pitcher who made who came up last year who showed a lot of promise and he's been really good as their closer that's been a position of need for them uh for the, you know they've sort of shuffled around 
uh, from one veteran to the other for the past couple seasons. And another thing is they've been dealing here. They dealt with Ian Kinsler uh, not being available for um, Mm -hmm. for the first part of the season. And, you know, Zach Cozart has taken over at second base. And that's one thing that, you know, when they sign Cozart, you know, if he's coming off that good offensive season, you have a lot of faith in him. He's outstanding defensive shortstop playing third base next to Andrelton Simmons and that defensive uh, advantages there. But then, you know, one thing I don't think we really talked about at the time is that gives them a lot of positional flexibility. So they yeah. can lose um, lose Kinsler for a while or even lose Simmons and Cozart would be able to move over and fill in one of those spots. And we saw the Astros do this. You know, the Astros have three really good shortstops on the team and that allowed them to, to um, uh, sustain the loss of Carlos Correa in a way that that another team, a less deep team might not have. So, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have a ton of depth, but they can, you know, move the pieces around in in a way that I think has has benefited them early in the season. Yeah, I think they're currently second in the majors in park adjusted defensive efficiency, which is a fancy wonky way of saying they're good at fielding. They convert a lot of batted balls into outs and That is not a surprise given who is in their infield now and given that they added Kinsler, that they added Cozart, that these guys are in some cases moving to easier positions than they had played in the past and they were really good at the more challenging positions. So I think that that will hold up all season and that makes up for some of the potential pitching shortfall if you convert a lot of balls to play into outs. That makes up for perhaps not striking out as many guys as you'd like. So I think they're a a well-constructed team. And I mean, it sounds like a joke, but I'm serious when I say this. I'm genuinely worried that Otani is ruining prospects for me forever. Like, uh, (laughs) oh, Ronald Acuna, I hear he's pretty good. Can he pitch? No? Well, never mind. Not interested. I I just don't know how I'm ever going to be this excited about a player again. I'm I'm actually worried about what the after effect of this is going to be. Otani is ruining me forever. I think he's already ruined you. So let's <laughs> let's end so on too. this real quick. This is not exactly a, a real, not real thing, but Bartolo Colon uh, flirted with a perfect game. I was, while this was going on in Minute Maid Park, I was a mile away at the Toyota Center covering the Rockets uh, Timberwolves playoff game. And I think I was the only person in America rooting against the perfect game because like I would have jumped out the window if I had been, <laughs> like if, if that was the reason that I had missed this. He's had yeah. like, I thought he was done last year. I mean, let's yeah, let's just talk for, sure. for a minute or two about how um, this has been just the most bizarre career that I can think of. It's very strange. It's I mean, I was thinking of parallels. I guess, you know, Cologne is about to turn 45. He turns 45 next month. And of course, you witnessed the Jamie Moyer experience up close but and this personal. Is, and but Jamie Moyer was lefty <laughs> breaking never... baller. He, he <laughs> right. wasn't the kind of pitcher that Cologne was as a young guy. No, certainly not. Moyer was great at age 45, too, but he did not have the career transition that Clone has had, where he was someone who threw 100, and now here he is. And did he go overseas and have some sketchy medical treatments and potentially take some substances that we're not aware of or that we are aware of? Sure, maybe he did. And who's to say that he isn't or won't be at some point in the future? But I think we're all enjoying this no matter how he's doing it. I don't know exactly how to describe what he does because it almost defies analysis. I can't say what he's doing differently in any meaningful sense from last year when he was almost unplayable and it looked like he might be out of the league just glancing at his stuff. He's not doing a whole lot different except that he's riding the sinker even more heavily than he has in the past. So he's now throwing about 70% sinkers on top of the four seamers. So he's occasionally mixing in an off-speed pitch, but it's worked incredibly well. He's getting grounders. He's getting strikeouts. Of course, he's not walking anyone. He never does. I can't imagine that this kind of performance will continue, but I'm enjoying it for as long as it does. And and it is kind of frustrating when you hear people mock his stuff because certainly radar garden wise, there are many, many pitchers who are better, few pitchers who are worse in that respect. But 
his command is incredible and he has movement. So even if he's throwing some form of fastball over and over and over again, it's breaking in different directions. He can put it exactly where he wants it. So when he's on, it looks like some sort of optical illusion, but it works and yeah. I hope it continues. And that's the the thing. And I guess we'll close on this. Like there's the the saying, you know, pitching is like real estate. The most three most important things are location, location and location. And if you can mm-hmm. command the fastball, I mean, this is I don't I don't want to say like this is the extreme of what we might ordinarily consider a continuum, but mm-hmm. because he's just so unique the the way he's doing this. But um it, this is a testament to like the most important thing you can do as a as a pitcher is command your fastball. And if you it, you know, there's a point to which if that's all you can do, then then that's enough. And so yeah, I mean mm-hmm. it's it's incredible. And you know, this is you know more than a, a four minute podcast conversation. Just the complexity of of his career and his life. But it, I mean, it's it's very cool to see him continuing to do this after. I mean. You know, the last time I saw him out, he I think the first five runner or five uh, batters he faced scored. Um, yeah, I thought he was he done barely, last year. So this, yeah, this is very, he barely very made cool. the roster this year. It looked like he might not even get a chance. He was, you know, getting minor league contract offers. And here he is somehow the best pitcher on the Rangers so far. So, well, that doesn't run. somehow, you know, <laughs> no, the entire Rangers staff is, you know, the 2011 All-Stars. But <laughs> still, if there's going to be a team impressive. that that's going to need somebody to eat innings. It's the Rangers. So, you know, the Rangers having need of, of starting pitching, that's definitely real. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, I'm, I just couldn't be happy for happier for you. This has just been a huge week between, <laughs> between the angels and, and Bartolo and, you know, continued mm-hmm. success, Ben. Thanks for coming. Thank on. you. I, I'm glad to join you on this blessed Otani day. We're going to take one more quick break and then be right back with Ryan hot takes. O'Hanlon. Want an unfair advantage to dominate your fantasy baseball league? Well, look no further. Download SquadQL to your Apple and Android devices for free. SquadQL is the only mobile app that you need to crush your friends and rivals this year. It recommends the best starting lineup each day based on your starters, bench players, and free agent pool. How does SquadQL actually do this? The app connects directly with your Yahoo, ESPN, and CBS leagues, pulling in your actual roster and your league scoring system. It also provides waiver wire recommendations, daily updates to player rankings, and much more. Head to the Apple app and Google Play stores to download SquadQL, your all-in-one fantasy baseball manager. SquadQL is brought to you by the creators of RotoQL, the leading daily fantasy lineup optimizer trusted by over 100,000 DFS players. You can also download RotoQL for free for both Apple and Android. If you recognize this voice, it's because you're a listener of the Ringer FC show Ryan O'Hanlon is an editor at TheRinger.com. He has been my editor for the past two years. He is wonderful in that capacity, is wonderful as a sober, clear-minded soccer analyst, and he is an absolute lunatic when it comes to baseball. So for that reason, I sort of mentioned that in in our planning Slack channel, like, you know, maybe we should have O-Headline on. And I said, as as reluctant as I am to give him a microphone. So thanks for for coming on, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate you dealing with me for two years and not requesting. I mean, maybe you have requested a switch to a new editor. I didn't know that was an option, to be totally uh, honest. Well, uh, we can discuss that after the podcast off air. Okay, just to start, give me two of your wildest takes. One, pitch framing is cheating. Okay. And two, Kurt Suzuki is the best catcher in baseball. Okay. So let's go. Let's. Do I really have to engage with the Kurt Suzuki take? <laughs> we should at least acknowledge that Kurt Suzuki, how old is he now? 34, 35, should be completely washed. Last year I had a WRC plus of 129. This year he's at 149. So, so shout out to Kurt Suzuki. <laughs> you know that like anybody can hit anything over over the span of a couple of weeks. Like this is this is the definition of small sample size, right? Well, what about last year? 81 games. Is that too small? I guess not, but the thing about Suzuki is not that 
it's he's always been at least an okay hitter like you but the problem with him has always been that he's been an apocalyptically bad defensive catcher which is where he differs from some of the other popular catchers at the ringer you know ben's friend tyler flowers or austin hedges but you know kurt suzuki in in his career is minus 77.8 uh fielding runs above average and like he's not that good a hitter to be able to to make up for that and particularly when you know he's been at at his best a mediocre pitch framer right although like i guess if you take your your moral <laughs> objection to pitch framing then maybe your your calculus changes well can you tell me like you know if you're a good hitter and you're a catcher it's way more valuable than if you're a good hitter and you're a you're a first baseman right. or a dh right so like yeah. par- part of it is part of being a catcher is just I, we've talked about this is just your ability to like not you know have your knees ground into dust when you're crouching down for nine innings every day and then being able to right you know be able to stand up and take swings at you know major league pitches so like when you say Kurt, Kurt Suzuki is a bad catcher like bad fielder like so does that just mean that his pitch framing is terrible does it mean that he's just getting stolen on all the time does it mean that like there are a ton of past balls um like how if we're operating from the idea that like just by virtue of him being a catcher he's more valuable when he's a hitter how bad of a fielder does he then have to be while he's catching to sort of cancel that out if that makes any sense yeah i mean he's kind of not been very i mean it's the knock on him is a lot of framing and like the other stuff, the throwing and blocking is mostly marginal, marginal to, to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's the reason why Kurt Suzuki with his, I mean, his um, OPS plus has been in the nineties for, you know, mid to high nineties in the, for most of his career. And I think like he's eating up a lot of that with his, with his positional adjustment. Like that's, He's you know career OP or career 257, 314, 383 hitter, which like you wouldn't tolerate that at even third base or center field, but he gets away with that and is and you know, it is for a catcher a fine hitter. Uh, you know, you can live with that, but that's still not in order to be a good player with that kind of offensive numbers, um, you know, you need to be a good defensive catcher as well. But let's so let's go to the pitch framing because this has been like the big statistical breakthrough over the of the past five to ten years and you are just against it out on pitch frame <laughs> no i understand that it's real and it, it has an effect it's just kind of you know it's it's kind of wild to me that so many of these players are now considered among the most valuable players in baseball because they can manipulate a, the way a ball looks um to the umpire behind them what so what happens when we have robot umps then? I don't think we will live to see robot umps. But I mean ov- obviously if that if that happens then this goes away then you know some catchers Tyler Flowers loses 20 runs worth of value every year mm-hmm. which I don't know I guess that is sort of bizarre but like you know it's just it, calling balls and strikes is really hard and so the ability to manipulate that around the edges is the, the value of that's immense. Can you think of any sort of... Is there any corollary in another sport? Is it like being able to trick referees into calling fouls in soccer? Yeah, I think that's a... You know, I was going to say Kevin Garnett has never set a moving screen in his life. You know, it's that sort of thing. I mean, if it's the ability to operate slightly outside the rules that... Which, I don't know, like there's... But there is such a a negative like moral or normative language around diving in in hockey or soccer or basketball that doesn't really exist around pitch framing like and there's like some catchers don't like to talk about it like they're stealing strikes they they like to talk about it in positive terms like oh i'm just making my pitcher look good it's which it's interesting too cuz it's like <laughs> if there's any sport that would seemingly get upset about this it would be the sport of the unwritten rules don't you think mm-hmm. but, but i don't know i'm i feel like i'm in take hunter right now. <laughs> like that's why you you this is for the listeners this is why uh 
Michael gets upset at my takes because there is a kernel of truth to everything that I say, as all of the best takes um, do. So I guess a larger question I'd want to ask ask you, um, since I'm hosting your podcast now, do you think that like it, it's I interesting? Fucking hate you. <laughs> We're never doing this again. <laughs> do you think that it's um, like the idea of like positional positional adjustments? Is that uh-huh. is that a thing that can change over time? Like you know, we you talk a ton about how baseball kind of changes the three true outcomes there are more fly balls less ground balls so like is a center fielder five years from now going to be less valuable than a center fielder is today i mean probably not in five years but the spectrum has changed like uh back in the like 19th century there uh you know you think a third base as a more offensive position than second base right now, but it was reversed in the early days of baseball when there was more bunting, a lot more balls hit on the ground. Um, you know, third baseman had to charge and come in. And so like, if you add two equivalent players, you put your weaker, you know, your weaker defender at second base, whereas that's the opposite now where, you know, second baseman need more range and need to um, turn double plays and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I just don't think it's going to happen overnight. All of the, the the game's changing so i just don't think it's changing that rapidly that makes sense i i just want to single out kurt suzuki for sort of uh well good you know making his game he's not going to be affected by the oncoming uh takeover of robot umpires no he won't because he won't still be playing when we get (laughs) robot umpires but um so i want to bring up something that that you wrote last year that like ordinarily I'm not Mr. You know, Mr. Cold takes exposed or whatever the, the worst uh, handle on the internet is. Um, but I took so much shit personally when you said that Aaron judge was like, I had nothing to do with that article. You said Aaron judge was the worst hitter in baseball last year. And I need, like, we need to talk about this in, in the light of day. And right now he's, he's got a two Oh five WRC plus they're booing Stanton, but they're not booing judge. So account for yourself when you say you've taken a lot of shit do you mean just like random people on twitter or like actual sort of people thought i wrote it (laughs) that was the that was the whole point um to sort of put you out there and use you as a human shield um no the whole point of the piece was uh for those those who could not and i think those almost accounts for 100% of the people who have read it and 100% of Yankee fans who read it, those who could not understand that it was uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, it was about how over the first about week and a half after the All-Star break, um, by value, by wins uh, above replacement, Aaron Judge was the worst player in baseball. And that made a lot of people really mad. But it was true for like 10 days. You said you wanted to like illustrate something about streakiness. So, you know, was there a larger point or were you just winding people up? I was partially winding winding people up. Um, but I think I think there is a point a larger point about streakiness. I I think about the uh, the Billy Bean quote from Moneyball where he's or I don't know if it's him or Michael Lewis, but they say that you know, if you watch the best player in baseball play and like the 500 best baseball player play on the same day, there's like a pretty good chance you would have no idea what the difference is because like the, the, you know, one extra hit or walk that the better player is getting that adds up over 162 games. But in one game, you know, it's, it's such a small sample. And Mm -hmm. I think um, judge is someone who is just because he strikes out so much is prone to, you know, swings beyond just one game. Um, and I think uh, that was my larger point, that Aaron Judge is prone to being the worst ba- player in baseball for prolonged stretches of time, even though he actually is one of the best players in baseball. Uh, there's something to, like, I'm doing it again. I'm, like, I'm getting sucked <laughs> in. It, it's... <sighs> so... I'm never going to be on this podcast again. 
I don't like watching Aaron Judge play. I'll just I'll just say this. Like, you know, I, I wrote a whole article last year about at your urging, as it turns out, that <laughs> the three true outcomeization and the fly ball revolution are making baseball less interesting. I mean, Aaron Judge is an incredible hitter, but he's also like a circus act. He, like there's a novelty that sort of wears off for me after a while. Like, I, you know, my thing is I want to see confrontations between um between fielders and base runners plays on the bases and you don't get that with strikeouts walks and home runs the only comfort like Aaron Judge is going to send fielders to the hospital he hits the ball so hard so how I that's one of those things that like I wish was true but the game is just not heading in that direction yeah do you do for him is it like is it also watching a judge at bat compared to like you know you hear all about how you know Joey Votto's plate appearances or like like a game of chess or whatever with judge is it is it mm-hmm. also just not fun for him to just kind of be like waiting for a pitch he can swing as hard as he can at i mean i don't want to impugn his approach or anything because obviously he's got a great eye but like there is like a you can work through Votto or even stanton traps another guy like this like you could see them tracking the pitch where his judge, he's like, that's just the pitcher playing keep away, which I guess, you know, some people would would say is impressive for other reasons, you know, or, you know, is it a sight to behold. But like, you know, he's just looking for his pitch. He's going to hit the shit out of it. Whereas, you know, there's a little bit more back and forth with some other hitters. Yeah. Well, I guess I, th- I think my other point would be that when he does fail, it seems like a spectacular failure. I guess par- partially just because he's always striking out <laughs> when he's not either walking or hitting home runs. I mean, he's striking out less this year. He struck out less last year than the year before. Small Maybe sample just, size, as you I said mean, earlier. Yeah, it's true. Oh, strikeout, <laughs> strikeout and walk rate stabilized pretty quickly. So, you know, let's revisit this in a couple weeks. So you're okay, telling, get you're, the hell off you're telling me uh, Aaron Judge is the best player in baseball, I think is what we just came around to. We're not doing this again. All right. You know, every, every other guest, have, I've been like, oh, yeah, we'll have you back later on. Just go away. Uh, I'll talk to you in five minutes. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right. Love you. Bye. All right. Thanks, I guess, to Ryan O'Hanlon. Thanks sincerely to Ben Lindbergh and Zach Cram. Thanks to Jameson Tyon, Bartolo Colon, Wilmer Font for providing us with content this week. Thanks to producer Jim Cunningham. And thank you for listening to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Enjoy the games. We'll see you next week. Okay, get the hell off my podcast. We're never doing this again.